That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Coming up on the science revolution, biodiversity is dying as Trump opens 5,000 square miles of the ocean to the free market. Dr. Lauren Waller joins us to discuss how and why native plants can sequester carbon better and longer. Plus, Jim Adams from the Alaska National Parks Conservation Association is here on why Trump is allowing hunters to kill bear cubs in their dens. Are big game hunters like Don Jr. gleefully heading to Alaska to kill baby animals again? And cultural economist Dr. Jacoba Williams talks about how studies show black deaths at the hands of law enforcement are linked to historical lynchings. So Donald Trump has just by executive order put hundreds of species at risk of extinction, ocean-based species. He's opened 5,000 square miles at the Atlantic Ocean that had been protected habitats to commercial fishing. Jake Johnson writing about this over at CommonDreams.org. Ancient and slow-growing deep-sea corals, endangered large whales and sea turtles, fish, seabirds, sharks, dolphins will pay the price for this in a move that environmentalists warn could further imperil hundreds of endangered species just for the sake of profit. Donald Trump on Friday signed a proclamation rolling back an Obama-era order and opened nearly 5,000 square miles off the coast of New England to commercial fishing. His interior secretary, former mining and oil lobbyist David Bernhardt, said, quote, I love it. We're effectively taking down a no fishing sign in the Atlantic Ocean. The minute you sign it, we'll begin planning. And he did sign it. And yeah, Interior Secretary David Bernhardt's billionaire buddies are just uh, licking their chops. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. You know, destroy the planet and make more money. This is all interrelated. This disrespect for some humans, placing some humans above other humans, this disrespect for our environment, disrespect for dissent, you know, the ideals of democracy. I mean, at all these different levels, this stuff all fits together. This most recent one is really distressing. They are rescinding an order that protected bears and wolves on protected lands so that now Don Jr. and Eric, the big game hunters who are so proud of having their pictures taken with uh, dead elephants and whatnot, they can go up to Alaska and literally uh, go into bears' dens and uh, kill the, the baby bears and lure them with donuts and things. Jim Adams, the Alaska Regional Director for the National Parks Conservation Association, the NPCA.org, is uh, on the line with us. Twitter handle is AdamsJAK. Jim, welcome to the program, and tell me what the Trump administration is doing here. The Trump administration is rolling back a rule that was passed in 2015. That rule in 2015 said that you can't kill black bear cubs and mothers in dens on national preserve land in Alaska. We have about 20 million acres of that if you're a sport hunter. And we also said you can't shoot wolf cubs in dens 
on national preserve land in Alaska if you're a sport hunter. You can't bait brown bears. Put out bacon or donuts or something else so that the bears get habituated to food and come by predictably so you can shoot them. Again, if you're a sport hunter. The Park Service was kind of forced into passing that rule in 2015 because the state of Alaska has engaged in an increasingly aggressive campaign over the last 20 years to reduce bear and wolf populations so that caribou and moose populations increase for sport hunters here in the state. They essentially want to turn the state as best they can into a a game farm for caribou and moose hunters. And Hmm. as that went on, the state began to pass more and more kind of aggressive regulations that applied to national preserve land, you know, land that's set aside for protection for all Americans. Uh, Some of the, frankly, wildest and most incredible country in the world, and certainly in the United States, is up here in these preserves. But the state started saying, well, okay, you can kill bears 365 days a year instead of 90 days a year. And you can kill two bears a year instead of one every four years. So during that time, the Park Service kept objecting to these increased takes and increased bag limits and increased hunting season saying, wait a minute, this isn't what the preserves are for. They're for all Americans. They're not just game farms. Until finally, the Board of Game went beyond just changing seasons and bag limits and said, okay, no, now you can kill cubs and now you can kill wolf pups on these lands. And at that point, the Park Service, uh, frankly, was backed into a corner and passed a rule saying no. You can't do that. Our national preserves are actually for all Americans. They're not intended to just be feeding farms for caribou and moose. And um, now the Trump administration, over the course of three years, has been working to reverse that. And a couple of weeks ago, they announced they were going to. So I was right that Don Jr. and Eric Trump might be up in Alaska next uh, looking for things to kill. This is pretty pathetic. Is there any way to stop this? I mean, is this entirely within the province of the Trump administration? There's not a, there's no legislative remedy or, I mean, what do we do with this? It's a good question. In the short term, the Trump administration, interestingly enough, they announced that they were going to release the rule, I don't know, 10 days ago, but they haven't done it yet. So we're still waiting for it to drop with a large thud on our foot, mm-hmm. probably at 4.30 p.m. on a Friday because they like to drop things then so no one notices. But once that comes out, certainly litigation will be an option. It's not appropriate for an agency to essentially turn around and reverse a decision it made three years ago after a lot of consideration and hard work. So there'll probably be a legal angle for a bunch of people. But I think also we should be talking to our congressional representatives. I don't think that in the current Congress, this rule could be reversed. It's always possible that a new Senate and House and potentially new president would consider reversing this rule. On a larger scale, are there any efforts to bring back apex predators across the rest of the United States? Or is this kind of battle going on state by state? I know that the ranchers and farmers have always uh, been hostile to wolves and and, uh, presumably bears as well. It's, um, you know, in Alaska specifically, the effort is more to keep people from killing them unreasonably uh, than it is to um, kind of bring them back. We have really, I mean, Alaska and the United States should be really proud of the bear and wolf populations that we have across the state and on our public lands, particularly on the parks and national preserves. But, um, you know, what we don't want to do is have the state go after them and reduce them. But broadly, more broadly, nationally, You know, as you know, there are efforts 
bring back wolves and bears and other predators to portions of the country like the Cascades and Washington. And those efforts are really important for the ecosystems. What we've seen in Yellowstone and other places where we actually brought wolves and other apex predators back is it really makes a difference. It changes everything that's going on. Streams get healthier. Places aren't overbrowsed. Different kinds of native birds come back. Apex predators make a huge difference in ecosystems and, frankly, in our experience of the, the world. Yeah, they fit into the, uh, the great web of life, as it were. Fascinating stuff. Jim, tell me about your organization, the uh, National Parks Conservation Association. You're the Alaska Regional Director. We're talking to Jim Adams. Yeah, so National Parks Conservation Association is the uh, country's largest nonprofit advocacy organization focused on national parks. We were, I think we just celebrated our 101st anniversary. We were actually created by the founder of the Park Service because he realized after just a very short time working in government that the Park Service and the national parks were going to need an outside advocate. And that is our role. So we work to protect the parks and the preserves that people use, the national historical parks that people go to uh, to learn about the nation's history and um, the surrounding ecosystems so that when people do visit those places, the kind of incredible experience we all expect. Right. Fascinating stuff. Jim, thanks so much for dropping by. Jim Adams, the Alaska Regional Director with the National Parks Conservation Association, npca.org. And you can tweet him at AdamsJAK. Jim, thanks again. Tom, my pleasure. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Great talking with you. us today is Dr. Lauren Waller. Dr. Waller is a researcher at Lincoln University and a postdoctoral fellow at the Bioprotection Research Center in New Zealand. Dr. Waller, welcome to the program. I'm, I'm curious if you could tell us, first of all, the difference between native plants and invasive or introduced plants in a biological system. I mean, we've all seen the introduction of earthworms in North America 500 years ago, or uh, rabbits in Australia, or, you know, and those aren't plants. Kudzu in Georgia, you know, we've seen the consequences of this. First of all, some definitions, native plants, and, and what's the fundamental difference between these native plants and these new species around the world? You're in New Zealand, we're here in, in North America in the United States. Exotic plants are a global problem. They're, they're everywhere. And a native plant is one that has evolved in a place where it has evolved over time to interact with all the organisms in that environment. So friends and foes, you know, mutualists and enemies, herbivores, things like that. Because of that, you know, there, there are constraints on their growth. So, for example, plants and environment, they accumulate pathogens. They have to find ways to have dealing with those pathogens. And all these constraints prevent them from taking over a place. And then when an exotic species comes, and that's one that has, has experienced those same sort of constraints in, in their own environment, when that's moved to a new place, those constraints are, are often removed. So, for example, a plant might leave its specialized pathogens at home and come to a new place where those specialists don't occur, and then that plant can take over a place and often does and become quite competitive. So it's sort of like it's, it's lost its natural predators, be they bacteria or bugs or, you know, whatever it may, or other plants for that matter, competitors as well as You mentioned that native plants, therefore, often grow more slowly than these exotic or invasive species, and that that has a consequence with regard to the sequestration of carbon. Can you explain that, please? 
what we've done is we've sort of connected the dots, I guess, between a, a really large body of literature in ecosystem and invasion ecology. So we know that it's these interactions with other organisms that explain why carbon is released from the soil. So when a plant degrades its tissues in the soil, soil microbes release that CO2 into the atmosphere as a result. And we know that exotic plants, when they come to a new place, they interact differently with those organisms in that new place. And so what we found was that it's those differences in the way they interact that explains this increase in carbon release from the soil in the new place. One of the things that has become real popular in the last decade or so in particular is carbon credits, paying for, you know, like if you if you take a flight, there are organizations you can kick in, you know, 1% of the cost of your flight or whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, they will plant trees or they will sequester carbon equal to what your seat on that airplane used, or at least that's how they're promoted. And I know some of the criticisms of this is that some of these organizations are simply going to parts of the world where land is really, really cheap and has been deforested Mm -hmm. and bringing in Mm -hmm. whatever trees, seedlings are cheapest, whether they're native or not, and just planting forests basically like, well, like, you know, FDR did in the 1930s in the United States, Mm -hmm. although those were probably mostly native species because it was America's receding America. How does this research that you're talking about inform us about how if we're going to do commercial carbon sequestration or if we're simply trying to preserve natural ecosystems so that they're more efficient at carbon sequestration, we should go about doing both those things. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, our our research suggests that native plants are slower cycling and potentially as a result of these constraints with other organisms, right? So that planting species that come to a new place, you know, these exotic species, they can accelerate the carbon release in those soils. It's an interesting aspect of our work was that um, we found that there's afforestation and reforestation, right? So clearing land, actually, for new exotic plants is actually what our work suggests is that that will result in a much higher release of CO2. And so, that, yeah, that maybe these, these programs um, should really focus on, on using natives in those programs. Yeah, it, it, it just makes a lot of sense. It's a very straightforward process. Mm-hmm. This is, final question, I'm guessing that this is, these are basically universal principles, even though you're doing that work in New Zealand, that what you're learning should be applied around the world. Yes, I'd imagine. But I think that we might see very, very different results in different places. You know, it might depend on productivity. New Zealand's a very productive environment, and so it might be quite different. But I think, yeah, I think the the basic principles probably will be universal for sure. Fascinating uh, stuff. Dr. Warren Waller, research scientist at Lincoln University, postdoctoral fellow at the Bioprotection Research Center in New Zealand. Dr. Waller, thanks so much for dropping by today. Great talking with you. Sponsoring the interview this week is New Leaf Natural CBD Oil. Boy, with all this flying around, you know, I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, it, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti, or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. I think is the proper way to say that. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Natural CBD Oil is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. 
Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to newleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com. Code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. newleafnaturals.com. Looking through some news stories the other day and saw this amazing piece by Dr. Jacoba Williams, a cultural economist with the Economic Policy Institute, EPI, with their program on race, ethnicity, and the economy. EPI.org is their website. The title was Black Deaths at the Hands of Law Enforcement Are Linked to Historical Lynchings. I found this just extraordinary. Dr. Williams's Twitter handle is at J-H-A-C-O-V-A, Jacoba. Dr. Williams, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us and, and for this extraordinary research. I suppose at a certain level, it makes sense that those communities that historically have lynched African-Americans uh, more frequently than others, shall we say, would mm-hmm. have more black deaths at the hands of law enforcement officers right now. But what a shocking connection between then and now. Or is it not at all shocking? Is this simply the modern version of lynching? People, you know, I think are correctly referring to what these uh, Minneapolis police did to George Floyd as a lynching. What say you? And what does your research say? Oh, I said, yeah, no, I definitely say that it is a modern day lynching. What is a definition of a lynching? I think that people think that lynchings are defined by time. But they aren't. They have four characteristics. The first is that there's evidence that someone was killed. The second is that someone was killed illegally. The third is that three or more people participated in the killing. And the fourth is that they were claiming tradition to be serving tradition or justice. When you look at George Floyd's killing, what do you see? Video evidence of him being killed. Someone kneeling on him until he suffocates, which is illegal. Four police officers participated in it. And they claim to be serving justice for a supposed $20 counterfeit bill. So it is modern day lynching. And so I wasn't surprised at all um, that this thing connected. It's appalling. It's unfortunate. But I am happy that people are reading it. I'm happy that you invited me so that we can actually talk about what's going on and how it connects to the past. So, Dr. Williams, would it just be too simplistic or, or even facile to say that What we have here are communities where white supremacy, white racism, white fear, the various dimensions of, you know, why white people behave badly around race Mm -hmm. are just basically community traditions and Mm -hmm. and that that's the point at which it needs to be attacked. That's the root that needs to be pulled up with this weed. Or is it something more, uh, less visible, less obvious, uh, a little more sophisticated or, or complex, I guess would be the right word. I think both things are true. And so you said at the beginning, I'm a cultural economist. And what that means is I look at how historical events continue to influence the economic and political behavior, in particular of black individuals in the South. What I found in my research is that there is a tradition of racism. Racism persists over time. And that's what you're seeing in these counties. You're actually seeing that these counties that can be linked with lynchings, they also can be linked with low voter turnout amongst blacks. These areas also have a higher percentage of blacks who are killed by police officers. And I don't think that this is a coincidence. I think the good thing about this research is that it highlights that, hey, there is something called racism. 
It does persist over time. It has been a part of tradition. It's been a part of the culture, certain communities. And once we identify it, we next need to identify how do we stop it. And I think the first thing mm-hmm. is talking about it. I'm actually just saying that, yes, history matters. I always say, if you look at my Twitter, the first thing that I tweeted was that history matters. And I think a lot of times we want to shy away from history, but we have to confront it. Um, and I think we have to work with people like myself, economists, academics, grassroots organizations, uh, people in law enforcement. And we need to come up with some type of remedy for this issue that's called racism. Dr. Williams, I told this story a few times on the show recently about how my wife, uh, when she was in high school in East Lansing, Michigan, had to take black studies class. And it was an all-white school, but it mm-hmm. changed her life. I mean, in a really consequential way, her understanding of race. That's the sort of thing that it seems, I mean, if it's parents teaching their kids their own racism, mm-hmm. which seems like the simplest, mm-hmm. most straightforward explanation for this, the place where you can get between the parent and the child is in the schools. Is it not? And might that not be the place, you know, in these communities that have not only historical lynchings, but also now contemporary murders by police and, and, you know, low voter turnout of minorities and things because of the structural engineering of the local power system, political power system. Isn't that where we should be trying to intervene at the level of elementary, junior high or middle schools and, and high schools? I could not agree with you more. Talking about stories, I'm from New Orleans. So that's where the beautiful accent comes from. And one thing about mm-hmm. New Orleans is that people love New Orleans and they love, you know, to come and come from Mardi Gras to drink party. But one thing that they don't realize about New Orleans is that it's a very segregated city. I went to all mm-hmm. black schools my entire life. So elementary, middle, and high school. I went to, my middle school was named Thurgood Marshall, but two years prior to me attending it, it was named Beauregard. I mean, it was named Beauregard from its um, founding date. And you actually have black people arguing for the fact that a, hundred, a, a school that had 100% black population, tending it went to a school named after a Confederate general and how crazy this was. And so it's one of those things where I didn't actually have my first black friend until I went to grad school. Because, again, New Orleans is so segregated and people don't see that. And so one thing that I think that is huge is that we do, we have to look at how we're teaching our students. So like the books that they read, but just who they interact with. We live very segregated lives, and I wish that really people could look at that. Um, when you're going to the grocery store, who do you see at your grocery store? If you believe in God, if you're going to church, who's at that church worshiping with you? So I think it starts with education, but I think that we need to really have more interaction with each other to realize that we really are a human race. We are the same. And once we can see each other that way, I think that it helps us to erase this problem that we have, which is racism. In fact, I just had this discussion with a caller in the last hours who was saying, well, we just need to teach our police better. And I'm like, no, we need different kinds of police. We need to change the structure Mm -hmm. of our policing. But here we're talking about teaching our kids better. Are there other structural changes that could be made that would help that will help flush racism out of white culture? In your opinion. Oh, for sure. One thing that I think is huge, um, I'm a big voting um, advocate. And so one thing that I want to do is ease the voting policies that we have. And so I think that we need to expand our voting methods. I think what you just saw in Georgia, in particular in Atlanta, is just a travesty. So I think that when we actually have racist policies, racist politicians, we need to make sure that people can vote these people out of office. And we need to also support new politicians as well who have new and innovative ideas. There is nothing called race-neutral policies. Either a policy is racist or it's not. And so we need to make sure that we're very clear about that. And again, when we see that someone's implementing racist policies, that we make sure that everyone has a a right to vote, um, to voice how they feel about that and to vote people out. That's my main thing. Right. Call it out, identify it, 
I, some of these people I don't think can be shamed, but I get your point. And then people vote, voting people of goodwill. Amen. Dr. Jacoba Williams, a PhD, cultural economist, Economic Policy Institute, epi.org is the website uh, with the Race, Ethnicity, and Economy program. Dr. Williams, thank you again so much for dropping by today. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.